Chapter 16 of What the White Race May Learn from the Indian by George Wharton James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 The Indian and Her Baby. I have elsewhere spoken of the Indian woman's reception of her child. It is welcomed with joy, and yet in its first hour's treatment, most white women would think its life would terminate. After seeing that it breathes properly, that is, through the nose, the mother carries her little one to the nearest creek or water hole and gives it a good bath. Cold water has no terrors for her, and she does not fear its use for the child. With this cold bath, the child may be said to enter its earthly existence. Henceforth, life is to be a succession of hardening processes. Indian babies get no foolish and weakening coddling. They are loved dearly and petted often, but are made to lie down on flat boards or basket cradles, with arms and legs strapped down, and are thus early accustomed to physical restraint. They sleep out of doors from the day of their birth, and become accustomed to all kinds of weather. For an Indian child who has taken cold, we shall look in vain. The name, the thought of such an ill, is unknown. If the parents have to move from canyon up to plateau, or go off to faraway forests for the winter's supply of pinion nuts, the child is put into its carrying basket, swung on the back of the mother, dependent from her forehead, and carried either on horseback or on foot to the new stopping place. Simplicity and naturalness accompany every stage of the little one's life until the age of puberty, when the child life is supposed to end and the man or woman life begins. Now, while of very necessity our method of treating white children must be different from this, we can learn many lessons from the Indian that will materially benefit our race. The keystone of the whole idea is found in the words, No Coddling. Not long ago I went to the home of an artist friend. His wife had just presented him with a fine, healthy son. The wife's mother was present and had taken charge of the young mother and her baby. The room was stifling hot so that I could scarcely breathe, and when I went to see the baby it was wrapped up in a cradle with a sheet and three blankets over its head. At once I opened the doors and windows, taking good precaution to see that the mother did not take cold. I gave both grandmother and new mother a lecture upon the monstrous folly and cruelty of thus depriving the newborn child of needed air for its expanding lungs. The lesson was accepted in the proper spirit, for the father fully agreed with me, and on the grandmother's departure a few days later, the coddling, smothering process ceased, and a cold bath, sleeping out of doors, and a generally healthy treatment of the child substituted. I know this is an exaggerated case, but it serves as an illustration of the wrongful and excessive coddling we give our children, from which follow such evils as weak lungs, weak throats, readiness to take cold, etc. 
As the exaggerated opposite of this, let me relate the treatment I accorded to my own children. When my first son was born, we were so located that I was compelled to be both physician and nurse. His first experience, after a good hot bath, was a cold bath, and within half an hour of his birth he was sleeping out of doors. At five weeks of age he and his mother accompanied me on an 800-mile drive over the plains and deserts of Nevada. We camped out, slept on the ground, and gave him, whenever possible, an open-air bath in the cold mountain brooks that occasionally were met with. A year or so after the second boy was born, I was stationed in the little town of Cedarville, California, and one of the happiest remembrances of my life there was in winter when the snow was deep upon the ground. I would place a canvas upon the floor of my small study, where a good fire blazed in the stove, fetch in a couple of wash-tubs full of snow, then undress the youngsters, and watch them as they sat in the snow, rubbed it on their naked bodies, and laughed and shouted and crowed with delight when I gently snowballed them. While they were little tots, every morning before being dressed, they stood outside while I threw, not poured but threw, a bucketful of cold water over them. Then, after a vigorous and hearty rub-down, they went with me for a walk where they were allowed to run and jump and romp to their heart's content. This I call a rational treatment of children. It certainly is a healthy treatment, and those brought up under such an Indian method will never know the aches, pains, ills, and weaknesses that most white children are afflicted with. And I would treat my baby girls, if I had any, exactly the same as my boys, for the health of the race more nearly depends upon the health of the future mothers than upon that of the future fathers. If it be thought that I am too extreme, I quote an article entire from a recent Good Health entitled Strenuous Health Culture in which it will be seen that others have done the same thing with equally good results. Time was when clothing, sumptuous or for use, save their own painted skins, our sires had none. Yet they were far healthier and hardier than the present much-clad generation. Why does the savage go naked with impunity while the civilized man shivers in his clothes? and is a prey to colds, pneumonia, and a variety of diseases unknown to the naked savage. One of the marvels of the normal human body is its wonderful adaptability, the maintenance of its equilibrium under constantly varying conditions. By the regulation and adaptation of the heat functions of the body, the bodily temperature is maintained at the normal standard in spite of the changing temperature of the surrounding atmosphere. But when the body is artificially heated continually, as by overclothing and overheated rooms, its functions become to some degree dormant, and in consequence the natural bodily resistance is greatly lessened. The effort of the body to resist cold stimulates and strengthens. 
one who can resist cold can resist all kinds of disease germs. This has been demonstrated by the success of the cold air cure for a variety of diseases. The old-time coddling of delicate children, which still further lessened their vitality and weakened their powers of endurance, is now giving place to its opposite. Judicious exposure to cold has been found to be one of the best methods of strengthening weak infants and developing healthy children. At a recent conference of mothers held in Minnesota, they were advised that a snowbank makes one of the best cradles. One mother who had tried this treatment thought that it accounted for the unusual health and strength of the family. A Milwaukee physician, Dr. John E. Warden, has adopted this strenuous treatment to prepare his babes for the rigors of life, and up to the present his methods have been abundantly justified by their success. His little daughters, Shirley and Jane, aged respectively eight and three years, are two of the firmest and healthiest bits of humanity to whom disease of all kinds is unknown. During the cold weather, these children may be seen barefooted and bareheaded, clad only in their cotton garments, thoroughly enjoying a romp in the snowdrifts, and without even a goose pimple on their skin. "'We are merely following out health rules,' said Dr. Warden, speaking of his unique methods of bringing up his children. "'We are aiming at prevention rather than at cure. We have brought the children up so that they are fearless,' and dread neither the ice-cold plunge nor a romp in the snow in their bare feet. The door is always open, and they go out when they like and return when they are ready to do so. We do not force the children to go out in the snow barefooted. They go out of their own free will, and play until they are tired or their attention is called to something else. In the summer we send them out into the sun bareheaded and barefooted, with orders to keep out of the shade. On the street cars they are instructed to sit on the sunny side of the car. It is well that they experience something of contrast, therefore a cold bath is given them daily in the warm weather. In the winter they are allowed to go outdoors to get stimulus from the cold air. Children brought up like tender hothouse plants are likely to contract colds and other diseases, and to die as the result of not having robust constitutions. These children, on the contrary, will and do escape without any sickness, and should they get sick their recovery is almost certain, because of their being strong and in good condition. Both Dr. Warden and his wife are graduates of the University of Michigan, and Mrs. Warden was, for a number of years before her marriage, a trained nurse. During my hospital training and institutional work, says Mrs. Warden, I saw so much sickness due to weakened bodies that I investigated causes and came to the conclusion that much of the weakness was due to a lack of physical development, to abuses through mistaken kindness on the part of the parents, that so weakened the immature bodies that they could not withstand the attack of disease. With our children, beginning from babyhood, we have had one aim, 
and that is to give them strong physiques, and we have succeeded thus far. They have never had one drop of medicine and never been ill one moment. The clothing of these children is always light, and much the same summer and winter. It is of cotton almost exclusively, and no bands are ever used. In the place of stockings, the easy, sensible, comfortable Roman sandal, made only in England, is worn. We believe in clothing them as lightly as possible, says Mrs. Warden depending on their excellent heat-making organs to develop any extra warmth needed in an emergency. This stimulates a necessity for a good, strong, internal circulation of the fluids of the body and creates a desire to exercise a little in order to keep warm. Overwarm children are usually lazy. The warden home is sunny and bright with windows wide open day and night and the rooms kept always cool and fresh. No useless furniture, no bric-a-brac, no draperies, harbor dust and germs. The walls and hardwood floors and few articles of furniture are kept scrupulously clean, but without ornament. The whole house is given over to the children, and there is no need for prohibitions of any sort. Concerning the diet of his children, Dr. Warden says, No national or international problems concerning the welfare of our people are as important as our food problem. And yet it is a very simple one, solved by an all-wise creator before the creation of man. Time enough is wasted in the kitchen of our modern homes, spoiling good food by making almost impossible mixtures, and then overcooking these to do all the necessary work of any nation. This careless and ignorant diet leads to ill health, from which there is no escape unless we learn to lead a sensible life, eating moderately of natural foods, and these in simple combinations. With our children very little cow's milk is used, largely because of its unreliability in the city but we do not favor an abundance of milk anyway, after children have teeth to use on their food. Their diet consists of fruits, cereals, nuts, and vegetables, no spices, vinegar, etc. being used. Whole wheat flour, the bran included, is used exclusively. They are never urged to eat. We expect them to know whether they are hungry or not. Urging children to eat leads to overfilling of the stomach, and this to bowel disorders, and often death. Next to urging children to eat as a cause of overeating is variety. We never supply them with a choice of foods at one meal. The diet for each meal is simple, and yet in one season or year they get quite a variety, as exampled by a list of the fruits they get one kind at a time. Apples, pears, grapes, plums, cherries, oranges, pineapples, peaches, grapefruit, prunes, apricots, figs, dates, raisins, bananas, melons, and the numerous kinds of berries, all choice fruit. They scorn anything with a bad spot as being not fit to eat. 
Then again we buy them lots of nuts for food, not just for the fun of cracking and eating and usually overeating. They get nut food as a United States soldier his rations. Next we have an immense choice of vegetables, of which they get one kind at a meal, never two vegetables to one child at the same meal. On such a diet it is no occasion for surprise that they have never been sick. The good health to be derived from a simple meal more than repays for any fancied abstinence. The warden children are already little athletes. The elder girl is the youngest basketball player in Milwaukee. Every evening they exercise for a few minutes nude, incidentally getting an air bath to the skin of the whole body while developing and strengthening the muscles. Dr. and Mrs. Warden are not faddists. They are earnestly and steadfastly endeavoring to fulfill the trust committed to them, to develop their children into strong, healthy women, to strengthen their powers of endurance, and develop their physical faculties by bringing them up in accordance with all the laws of health. Another thing that I would have white women learn from their Indian sisters is a thing they used to know but are rapidly forgetting. That is, the joy of suckling their own children. An Indian mother that does not suckle her own child is almost unknown. With the superior classes of the white race, it is the opposite of this proposition that is true. Not only is this of great injury to the child, but it is fraught with most serious consequences to the mother. Is it nothing that the mother of a child willfully puts away from herself all the little fond, sweet intimacies that naturally grow out of this relationship? The joy and exercise of a natural and beautiful function? The feeling that the baby life is still being sustained by the mother's own life-blood transmitted by mother love and mother processes? into sweet, delicious food that nothing else can equal? It is a fact that all the higher affections and emotions of the human soul have to be cultivated and developed. The child sees little or no beauty in a sunset. It must be trained to recognize it. The love of nature grows as we cultivate it. The nobler emotions of self-sacrifice, humility, kindliness, grow as we cultivate them, and while, where maternity is a perfectly natural process, joy accompanies it in all its manifestations, there is no denying the fact that in our so-called civilization women have to cultivate the feelings connected with the function to bring to themselves the joy they should normally possess. But that there is a joy in suckling one's own child many, many mothers, true mothers, have assured me, and I wish to add my voice to the supplications of the innocent child that every mother give of her own sweet loving breast to the child she has brought into the world. Some mothers refuse because it destroys the beautiful contour of the bust, others because it demands too close confinement and would therefore prohibit regular attendance upon club or social functions. Poor women, bartering their God-given rights and privileges 
for the messes of pottage that society and club life afford, that is, afford to mothers at the time they should be with their babes. Can any society on earth, any club that ever existed, compensate for the loss of healthful nutrition given from a loving mother's breast? Let the statistics of bottle-fed babies attest the dangers that accrue from the mother's refusal or inability, for which she is to be pitied rather than condemned, to suckle her own young. End of chapter 16